I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Eternals. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. How long do we have? Seven days. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? We need to find the others. I haven't seen some of them for centuries. Hi. Hello. This is what the end of the world looks like. At least we have front row seats. You know what's never saved the planet? Your sarcasm. We have loved these people since the day we arrived. When you love something, you protect it. You can't protect. This even made of vibranium. Fall collection. IKEA. With us this time around is Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? For those who have lost track, this is the 26th movie in the MCU series and the third in phase four, following Black Widow and Shang-Chi. And the next one incoming is Spider-Man No Way Home, currently set for mid-December 2021, giving us four Marvel movies this year, which is the most we've ever had. Yeah, something of a backlog occurred, I believe. Yeah, but I mean, that all obviously plays into part and parcel of of what we've done. Like, Sharon, you pointed out uh, that Marvel have, unlike any other... um, ongoing series uh, a a sort of a parallel with the blip and the snap for what we're currently going Mm. through in terms of their whole world got shook up absolutely and it's it's not something that they ever intended to be intentional yeah um intended to be a direct parallel unless they planted it i mean it's a hell of a marketing not (laughs) 
let's shoot ourselves in the foot. It was the mouse with the shifty eyes. It's always the mouse with the shifty eyes. Here's a period of time when everything was horrendous, and here's a period of time where we now have to readjust to the post-horrendous period. Mm. Gives them a way to reflect current events without directly referencing yeah. them. Making Which it analogous. no other film, and never mind no other ongoing series, no other film has seems to have figured out how to do yet. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not Fast and Furious. And this movie has not done amazingly at the box office, which surprised a lot of people. On a $200 million budget over the past week or so since release, it has only brought in $281 million. Obviously, that's going to go up. I mean, we're, we're recording this on the second Sunday. Uh, for perspective, Black Widow made $379 million back in June, and Shang-Chi made $430 million on a lower budget of 150 Of course, Endgame made $2.7 billion, largely as a result of its must-see nature and the crucial factor of repeat visits from those who loved it. By the way, massive films that are melancholy tend to actually, like if they do it well, you get your Titanics and your Avatars, they do, you know, they, they, they make... They make a buck or two, which is... And Return like, like, of the King, it, yeah. It, it, Return of the King, fine point. It's it's the repeat visits from those that loved it, which is the difference that changes a mega hit and turns it into an ultra hit and gets it to the top of the list. But even Spider-Man Far From Home made $1.1 billion, which shows where cinema was in 2019. This year's current biggest earner in Western cinema, at least, because if you look at the uh, list... There's a lot of Chinese films up there because their cinema's been flourishing. More on that, I suppose, later. Like, we, we don't necessarily need to talk about that one on this episode, but that is a changing face of uh, world cinema. The, the year's current biggest earner is F9 The Fast Saga, which made $721 million. Even Venom 2 Let There Be Carnage has taken $427 million worldwide. By the way, folks, that's the uh, episode that we are doing as our uh, after-school club on the Patreon this week, so you can check that one out. Now, the Eternals taking will, as I say, go up, but I suspect not by overmuch. The word of mouth has been extremely mixed. Critically, it holds the absolute lowest metascore for any MCU film when judged by Rotten Tomatoes aggregate. Now, that one, famously, that will not tell you whether you'll like it, but it does give you a good impression of how far the generally extremely positive critical consensus plunged between Shang-Chi at an extremely healthy 92%, with an audience score of 98 and then there's Black Widow, which fared less amazingly with 79%, which is unusual for a Marvel, but a 91% audience score. For perspective, the punching bag that is Thor The Dark World from seven years ago is sitting pretty at 66% with an audience score of 75. Eternals is at 46%. But it is worth considering that the audience score fared better with 80%. And while a lot of commentators have called this film a mess and a failure, including several whom I respect, we found it to be a mess and a success based on what we wanted to get out of it. And tonight... We will be talking about the ups and downs of the director of Oscar-darling Nomadland, Chloe Zhao's passion project that she brought to Marvel when they first approached her originally to direct Shang-Chi. She was like, nah, man, but I got a hell of an idea for the Eternals.
Okay, so for those who haven't seen the film, the Eternals are effectively, in full spoilers on this episode, a squad of long-lived synthetic beings sent in to protect certain complex planets by cosmic gods known as the Celestials. Their job is to eliminate the Deviants, a bunch of pesky Mon stars who prey on intelligent life, and to take care of the intelligent evolved population. The big reveal halfway through the film is that each planet these squads are sent to babysit over long eons is in fact incubating a gestating celestial at its core. The humanoid populations have been unknowingly feeding these sleeping titans with their own energies over the centuries, and when the galactus-sized nippers reach full strength, they will bust through the mantle and destroy the mother planet in what is known as an emergence, heralding the birth of a new space god. The core of the film is actually a murder mystery, as Earth's group of ten Eternals that we are introduced to slowly discover this horrifying reality after having spent millennia watching over humanity and helping them grow, trying not to interfere too much in our development. The leader, Ajak, played by Salma Hayek, finds out first and turns up dead, causing grief and confusion for eight of the others, the ninth being the murderer. Because it turns out that Golden Boy Superman analog Icaris, played by Richard Madden, has reacted very badly to the idea of them potentially breaking their programming and he killed Ajak to prevent interference with the impending nativity. The rest of the Eternals debate and argue what they could or should do about the end of the world when the horrible truths start coming out, culminating in a rift in the group who were already fairly estranged from one another for various reasons that we will go into. At the close, Circe, played by Gemma Chan, initiates the destruction of the now-emerging newborn Celestial, and after several of their companions are dead, and he has been defeated in multiple ways, Icarus flies off into the center of the sun. The Eternals then regroup and take stock of their lives following this literally earth-shattering tragedy, and then their boss comes along with a serious chip on his shoulder and whisks Circe and two of the best remaining Eternals away, leaving the rest unsure of what to do next. Also, there's a white guy who gets a sword that will probably be important later on, and Harry Styles plays Fox McCloud in a cameo at the end. <laughs> Fox McCloud? Oh, damn. That's I him, isn't it? Put that together. That's amazing. <laughs> Okay, right, so we're actually going to talk about the weaknesses of this film first. Uh, we don't want to come off as too scathing. We really, really liked it. But at the same time, I, I was watching it and, and thinking, that's a problem. Mm, yeah, people are not going to like that. I get why this has uh, made critics dislike it. I like it, but I, I don't like this about it, and various other things. So one of the main ones uh, feels like uh, they, they kind of hamstrung themselves on this. There are too many lead characters or potentially lead characters this deals with 10 superheroes and like even endgame didn't try to juggle that many at once at least i don't think so i think it was the the core six avengers and rocket part of the 
problem, she said, in finger quotes. But they were all characters that we'd we'd known for years and years, and it was a big goodbye. Uh, But Guardians of the Galaxy had five. Half this. Introducing ten new people all in one go. Not just people. People are relative, like, Kit Harrington's character is a person right now. Mm. And we can go, okay, so he's like a support cast guy. But once they have a costume, we're like, okay, so who's this? What's their deal? Like, that's kind of the onus of superhero mm. stuff. Indeed. It shouldn't be, mm. because, like, a human beings should have that level of significance. But they are dealing with something on such a scale, they pretty much have to be wearing a cape to matter in this story. Go. I've forgotten what I was going to say. I'm so, so sorry. (laughs) But there's ten of them. Yes. Okay. So introducing ten characters at once when we don't know even hints of any of them. Yeah, we never even met one. a big ask. Yeah. And I honestly think that one of the things that we're later going to discuss as a strength did actually contribute to this, which is that they cast ten really good performers. Yeah. Which means that it's... They are still distinct. When you have have a team that's this big, a lot of the time you will have like three or four people who are your core, Mm. here's the people you need to keep your eye on, these are your front stage people, and these are the folks, those are your backstage people. They're there, they're contributing, but you don't need to worry about paying them too much attention. I'm helping! Here... You're Hawkeye. (laughs) (laughs) I was very reluctant to take my eye off anybody because any of them could have done something significant at any given moment. That is true, yeah. Any of them could have destroyed a civilization with the right nudge. Absolutely. Again, I think that we'll talk about the, the... actors and the performances because I'm still not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm glad they did that. Lord of the Rings, the other... they gave us two wizards and then a third one. There are two blue ones we're not even allowed to talk about. Well, and the other thing that the Eternals does specifically in the way it introduces its title characters is they're at the, like, the furthest possible remove from both humanity as a concept and the audience when they're first shown hmm. because... This is before they've even started trying to learn how to human. So you have this setup where you've got the tableau of basically the angels coming down to early humanity. And then you catch up with them when they've been living amongst humans for 7,000 years. And you have to process the, okay, they've gotten from there now to here. And then the movie proceeds to do a lot of really good work in showing, like, how we got from A to B and what that does to a person and how the different members of the Eternals family, like, process 7,000 years of humanity and do or don't break because of it. Mm. But especially in that first opening, you're like, okay, I've, I've got to keep track of and, – and because – the first thing you see them do is like kind of their first mission. They're not even coalesced as a unit yet. If you contrast the Eternals when they have that first appearance on the beach in Mesopotamia with, say, them in Babylon, like you can see how much they've grown as like a team. And it's all done very quickly. But, you know, again, that kind of leaves you adrift very early on in the movie going like, uh, okay, so that's kind of Superman and the Flash. And I guess... She's a teacher now. Okay. Mm. Uh, But as a result of all of those characters and having to sort of keep a mental uh, juggling where they are and who they are, also the fact that it jumps backwards and forwards in time doesn't do the film any favours in terms of the non-linearity actually working against 
being able to form a cohesive story. It does when you look at it from a big enough of grand enough perspective, mm. but when you're in the middle of it, just finding this stuff out. I feel like this film will be a grower, but you kind of have to have the right mindset and you need to be able to relax certain parts of your brain. Not necessarily, definitely not the thinking parts, but the parts that worry about minutiae. There is a cosmic scale to this mm. that you need to be able to lean into. Yeah. And I have to say, it was when I, when we were watching it, at no point did I feel like I was disengaged with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that detachment that I often have when we're watching something that I haven't made my mind up mm. about yet. I really felt like I was leaning into the everything that was going on. It does throw a lot of big asks at you very early on, yeah. but it's they're like engaging and fascinating. Mm. So it's it's giving you some like really weird curveballs. But and and I I can understand how people would bounce off of this. So it, it's it's not remotely similar in in like tone or subject matter. But like Malignant does a lot of similar like very big asks in those first like fifteen to twenty minutes. Yeah. And like if you if you're not going to follow along with that, the rest of the movie is just going to be a chore. Yeah. Makes you run a mental or indeed in the case of Malignant tonal gauntlet like uh, if you can deal with this level of intensity you can deal with the rest of the movie mm -hmm. and if you can get your head around the Eternals not only like most of the Transformers movies begin in a similar way to the Eternals going in the beginning there was the cube and then Megatron arrived on earth thousands of years ago looking for it the cube and was frozen in ice not many people know this, but the Transformers were on Earth back in Paleolithic times. We created life and were worshipped as gods. Not many people know this, but mankind found Transformers during the moon landing in 1969. Not many people know this, but Transformers were on Earth around the time of the dinosaurs. Not many people know this, but the Transformers were King Arthur's knights. I crash-landed on Cybertron, not nearly as destroyed as we may have led you to believe. Now I'm good again. We must defeat Cybertron. Not many people know this, but Bumblebee fought in World War II. And he killed Nazis outside of Winston Churchill's house. And Hitler was killed by a transforming watch. Mark Wahlberg is gifted Excalibur for being so special. The Earth was Unicron all along. We will address this in the next movie. We will not address this in the next movie. Michael Bay will not direct any more Transformers movies. And there was much rejoicing. I believe that gets us up to date, folks, in case you're wondering what got scrapped in the Bumblebee film-ing. So... <clears throat> but the real Unicron is the friends you met along the way. <laughs> it turned out racism was his Unicron. <laughs> and if you want to hear a really good podcast about the only live-action Transformers film worth seeing, listen to our Bumblebee show from the end of 2018. We've been here for millennia. So that's not difficult to get your head around. Mm. The difficulty and the challenge comes in the fact that Chloe Zhao really thought about what's that going to do to them. Yeah. I don't necessarily think she thought... I think her outlook is so compassionate and loving. We sat and watched her talk about the, the films that inspired her, and they're all things like Wong Kar Wai and Terence Malick, and that makes all kinds of sense. She has effectively put together a $200 million philosophical relationship drama here. I feel like a certain other directors, like the, the, the sense of this is so important and the, the visual tone made me think, 
man, like for the second time in two weeks after having also seen Dune, Zack Snyder would have fucked this up. Like he'd have made a different film. I saw a, a YouTube thumbnail saying Zack Snyder should have directed the Eternals. I was like, spin on. <laughs> no. Not going to get any we sense We saw that. that. It was Zack Snyder's Justice League and it, it was bad. There are very similar parallels. That, that I said when we talked about um, the Super Friends. It is the end times. The world is now crumbling to dust. You will be witnesses. That's the, the feeling that pervades, that baleful feeling of cataclysm that pervades Zack Snyder's Justice League. And he almost rescues it at the end. He almost manages to make it feel like, you know what? It was worth all that fighting. And then there's the Jared Leto Joker stuff and it fucks the whole thing in the bin. Before what, Bruce? Kill me? You don't want to kill me. I'm your best friend. You need me. Who's going to give you a reach around? Groundbreaking. This has that same level of, oh my god, everything's ending, but there's a much more personal, quiet kind of, like, as opposed to these lofty gods who don't give a shit about anything and turn humans into bloody smears on the wall, these are people who've spent their time with us, as opposed to, say, Diana, who's like, oh no, I, I don't want to have a relationship with anyone. And uh, it's like, get, go work in a museum. Seriously, find you. get to know these people, Diana. You need <laughs> to know what you're fighting for. You're absolutely right in terms of the distinction there. What Chloe Zhao has created is a a story about gods who want to human. Yeah. And what Snyder keeps talking about is at least for the benefit of humans who want to God. Yeah. Like, imagine if you had all of this power and no responsibility. How would you serve yourself? Good question there, Zach. It would be horrendous, Zach. It would be really bad. Are you saying I should have just left a whole bus full of school kids to die? Maybe. Fuck off, Dad! (laughs) (laughs) This might also tie into things that are perceived weaknesses of the film, and I don't necessarily agree when it comes to Eternals, but the way they approach action specifically tied to the fact that they are dealing with with gods and superheroes as mythology. Mm. And Chloe Zhao, while she is very good at creating like crunchy action scenes where the the more we see the Eternals in action, the more we see them working together. And it's got, you know, all this cool combination of powers and things. Mm. But she still puts the viewer at a remove. It's it's never quite as well, I mean, like, you know, Snyder's like, oh, no, if superheroes and gods were real, it would be bad and things would be end times and judgment. But whoa, look at these gods, eh? Aren't they awesome? <laughs> Zhao never quite goes to that, even though she's dealing with, like, these incredibly raw, charismatic characters who have these insane abilities. There's, like, if you look at Icarus, she is very deliberately borrowing from the, the remove that that you have with Henry Cavill's mm. Man of Steel sort of like yeah. weird alien subtle. aloof thing. Yeah, but but she never quite lingers on his physique or his strength or his, you know, the the way that you would with the, the a Snyder movie. You're not getting like that sort of very exaggerated splash page, you know, trying to get the audience into the action. It's showing these abilities, but it's also showing like, man, this kind of fucking sucks for the people on the ground because there's just enough of them in the corners every now and then getting wrecked by deviants or just utterly dwarfed by these people. And so you're more on side with the humans than the gods, 
which is the whole point of what the movie's trying to do, as opposed to kind of like losing it all in the visual text. Yeah, you're watching them try to protect us rather than seeing big, explodey. You know, there was all the danger of making the Deviants too overpowered in order to emphasise how strong the Eternals were in being able to fight them. But the point of those action scenes is not, look how tough everybody involved in this conflict is. It's, look how tense and stressful it is trying to deal with this destructive force whilst shielding all of the people who are your potential collateral damage. Really, it comes down to Zack Snyder's heightened, unsavoury male gaze, juxtaposed against Chloe Zhao's heightened female gaze. She grew up watching world cinema and The Empire Strikes Back and Lord of the Rings. This is a film I watched when I was probably, I don't know, uh, 16, 17. It's the first time that I, I watched a movie and I thought, I feel something that that um, I didn't know was possible. Here she's talking about Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together from 1997. It, and um, these two are just two of the greatest actors um, ever lived. You know, finding another lonesome soul in a foreign city and how he used music in this. Anyway, I also fall in love with Tony Leo. Before I make uh, a movie, mm. I will watch this the night before. Raise the Right Lantern. Yeah. This is a very special movie from my country, from China. Zhang Yimou is the master. The formalism in this film and the way it captured an old culture, a city, and the way it used color and the way it used composition is very different than the films I make, but uh, every once in a while I'll, I'll copy a shot <laughs> or two from this movie. It's like a photography book. The way the, the new and the old come together mm. in this film I don't know, it's a, it's a very special one. My first short film that I made, I basically copied this shot by shot. I pay tribute, pay tribute. This one um, for Eternals is not really necessarily about the visual language of this one, but this idea of um, forbidden love. Oh, this is Ang Lee's lust caution. You know, like uh, the idea of uh, two lovers come from two different ideologies. Mm. They have this draw towards each other that they cannot they cannot break apart whether they're soulmates or if it's physical. It's just so sexy. It's one of the sexiest movie ever made. Tony Leung again. I'm not biased at all. And there's a scene in this film when things were coming to an end and then she performed a song for him. She sang in this uh, traditional song while he sat there and watched her. That scene is going to have influence in my career forever. One of our absolute favourite, most inspirational critics, Mark Kermode, found the film to be very up and down. So, mm. directed and co-written by Chloe Zhao, who made Nomadland and uh, The Rider, and is a brilliant filmmaker, an Oscar winner recently, only the second uh, woman to win uh, Best uh, Director after Catherine Bigelow for Hurt Locker. An impressively diverse cast of characters, including Makari, who is a deaf character played by uh, Lauren Ridloff, who is deaf. Gay characters who 
proudly uh, kiss on screen in a way that is kind of still fairly new in uh, Marvel movies. Rainbow Coalition of Cultural Heritages, completely rethought from the original uh, strip uh, incarnations to make it super inclusive and to make it something which is, you know, which really is pushing the boundaries and doing something interesting, full of things that you want to cheer for. The fact that a filmmaker like this is making this film, the fact that a film this big has a cast with this kind of diversity in it, the the fact that it's a film which has got really interesting actors like Barry Keegan, who I think is, you know, is always fascinating on screen because he has that thing about sympathetic but scary and mercurial and all those things. Sadly, despite all those points, it's a mess. You know, we often get this thing when somebody will write in and they'll complain that such and such a movie, this happened in the case of Bond, somebody wrote in and said that the most recent Bond movie was ruined by it being right on and it having blue-haired feminists in it. And we're saying, what on earth? It, you know, you can object to the movie for whatever reason, but objecting to it because it's because it's what you think of as, in inverted commas, woke is nonsensical. This is kind of proof that a movie can do all the things that that we would get accused of going soft on a movie for because it is you know it's diverse and inclusive and adventurous and Chloe Zhao and all those things should be great but it isn't and the reason it isn't great isn't because of all those things it's not like it's not a great film because it's woke are you afraid that people might no no yes yes yeah, so I want to be absolutely clear those things are not problems those things are actually the thing about the film that's interesting and good. Everything else is the problem. We could criticise Marvel for allowing this to happen, but I want them to take risks. Absolutely. That's the fundamental Absolutely. of this episode. This I want them to actually try doing unusual things. This is one of the and reasons this is why the critical response has quite frustrated me, to be honest, because from listening and reading the, the people who have had mixed feelings about it... I, like you said, a lot of them we very much respect. But I think what they've ended up doing is possibly because it was Chloe Zhao and they were expecting something like her traditional work and what she's already known for, they've ended up expressing their disappointment in what it failed to do praising the things that it did achieve, mm. but rather than it then being rewarded for boldness, because of the way Rotten Tomatoes and other aggregate sites work, you end up with something that says, well, they didn't like it, because there is more mm. in it that they criticise than you would normally get out of a superhero movie, because there's more in it than is in the average yeah. superhero movie. But I don't think that this is necessarily getting um, lower scores because it's challenging. I think that it is what is what it's doing is reminding them of other films that have done it in either a way that is more accomplished or in a way that irritated them. One of Chloe Zhao's favourite films, for example, is Tree of Life, which Mark Kermode hates. So if you start going down that road, you're going to polarise the critics, which is, again, it's a risk, and it's a risk I hope they'll keep taking. Shang-Chi was a risk. Black Widow, it shouldn't be, but it is a risk. The next Spider-Man film is actually not a risk. It's the opposite. It's, you know, getting in all of these elements that we know people like and then throwing in even more elements that we know people like. So people will be turning up in droves just for the fireworks show of all the casting. The other thing that I, I think maybe like people are bouncing off of is the Sharon talked about how this might be a grower. And I think, or maybe that was you, Alex, but it was um, mentioned that yeah, this might maybe. be a grower. And uh, like in terms of appreciating more on repeat viewings, mm. 
And like the last dinner, you mean? Well, <laughs> and and having seen it twice, there's there's very obvious structural things that come into sharp relief on that second viewing because you're not trying to basically have to do like superpower or arithmetic of mm. like, okay, who's got that and who was there? So they're there now and they're there here and this is – but you're once you engaged. can – Exactly, but you can also just very deliberately see, for example, the the way that she reveals because there's two major reveals because mm. you have just the the very obvious, oh, their mission here was a lie, and the audience is going to pick up on that pretty quickly anyway if they're halfway engaged. Yeah, yeah. And so having that reveal be before the one hour mark in the movie, and then saving the later reveal of like who the true villain is for Act Four, mm. it leads to a very clear like. And, you know, people talk about, oh, Batman v Superman is a five-act tragedy. No, this <laughs> is a five-act tragedy. And and part of why it, it is so like a eulogy is that all the stuff that we're used to in modern mythology, adventurous in mythology, the Greek myths that we all love to hear, hmm. are all like those early stages. You know, that, that first half of the hero's life before they just royally fuck up. Hmm. And then Eternals is like... Well, no, we had all the fun stuff. This is just the fallout. Yeah. Um, another thing we don't want to do, folks, is to tell, like, make a big sweeping hand gesture and go, you didn't like it because X, Y, Z. I hate it when podcasts do that. We have, Sharon and I have just recorded on Titanic, and we were trying very carefully as we went through to not just assume we knew why people don't like Titanic. There's actually a lot of reasons not to like Titanic. Well, I specifically really love it. As it turns out, The Eternals, there's other things going on which, which might just straight up push people away. I, I'm going to maintain, I think this should actually have been a TV series. I think that considering what they've done with uh, WandaVision, with Loki, with Falcon, given that amount of time, considering how much they cost and their captive audience this would actually be better received, at least for the first bunch of episodes, as a TV show. And then the standard Marvel thing would happen where everyone who is expecting, they know how it's going to go, several weeks in, they go, oh no, my theory was not correct, now I hate it. And then they'd probably bungle the end. But um, but still, I, I feel like the scale of this thing actually lends itself better to TV, and even just the look of it. Because that's another thing that I actually wasn't massively keen on. It has a muddy, grey-brown aesthetic to it, which is a little bit closer to Zack Snyder than I was even all that comfortable with. And also, and this was a, a weird stylistic choice considering the comic book origins, all the Eternals have the same colour power, which seems like a, 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 a churlish and... and unimportant thing to say, the minutiae. But it made for visually confusing action sequences where yellow light is flying back and forth and there are yellow light weapons and yellow light chains and yellow light wings and yellow light lightning and yellow light eye beams and yellow light this, that and the other. And unfortunately, I don't know whether it's the the uh, cinema screen, because remember I had this problem with some of the uh, um, murkier sections of Shang-Chi, but also I had this problem with Cruella, and I had this problem with Jungle Cruise, and I had this problem with Dumbo, and I had this problem with Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, and they were all on different screens, so it's not just one of them. I'm fairly certain other people won't have had this as an issue. Like, there are different ways of displaying them. And I also think different versions of eyes. Like, different versions of eyesight. Some of which, for me, I ended up going, what the fuck am I even looking at? For several scenes. Especially when they first find Salma Hayek, they're outside 
of a farm in the dark. There's no moon, and I was looking at people's chins as the only indicator that the slight pale patch over on that screen far away, which then just turned to another patch and said words, was a person as this charcoal grey murkiness surrounded them. At times, Sharon, you mentioned that it felt like watching an audiobook. I don't think... I've, I haven't seen anyone else complain about this, so maybe it was just us. But that actually meant that the action sequences, especially in the dark, in the forest, in London, all of them just felt like lots of bang and smash and powers. Lots of, like, I'm doing this because I'm very efficient at killing these creatures. But while you said you were never pushed out of the movie, I actually went whispered to you at one point, my brain is telling me to leave the cinema because I was repelled by the, the, the visual noise in front of my face. And I, act, I suspect that Chloe Zhao might be really great at uh, directing action. It's very possible that this is to do with the color grading because so many of the actual f- photographed shots are jaw-droppingly beautiful. Mm. I've seen clips of the film as well that people have used for review videos that seem to be well lit and you seem yeah. to be able to see. And it wasn't everything. It was it was certain scenes a lot of the time when a lot of things were moving around fast. The the finale luckily took place during the daytime. Yeah. But again the though, things... the, the, if, if they had different colored powers, you'd at least be able to go, "Oh, so red's fighting blue at this point." Mm. And the cinematographer is Ben Davis, uh, the uh, man who photographed Layer Cake, Stardust, Kick-Ass, he obviously works with Matthew Vaughan a lot, Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel, and somehow Cry Macho and The King's Man. So, along with Eternals, you could maybe see a trilogy of his films in the theatre if you went on the right week in late 2021. So this is not a near fight. He also shot Dumbo. What these films all have in common is Disney, live action. It's obviously not all of them. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 looked fucking tremendous, and I never squinted once, and it wasn't just because of the red cameras they were using. We watched Gawain and the Green Knight the other night on Amazon Prime in the UK, where it's included with your membership. Um, it's amazing. And we're going to be doing a show on it next year. We have got so much to get our teeth into there. But it's definitely not for everyone. However, it had lots of really fantastic shots. Beautifully framed. Arrestingly, unsettlingly directed. Phenomenally lit. Including nighttime scenes. Where the moon was coming down. Or at one point, reflected from a pond up into the faces of the people standing over it. So it is more than possible to light a night shoot with digital cameras. But also the color grading for Gawain and the Green Knight, first rate. Imagine what this film would have looked like if it had the aesthetic of Crazy Rich Asians. That sort of gorgeous, everything's bright and colorful, but not necessarily cartoonish. It just feels like Earth with the vibrancy turned up a little. It would actually have made it seem like this planet is really worth saving, as opposed to, oh, it's a quarry, just let it die. (laughs) I think one of the the elements that I picked up on while we were watching it, and I think I mentioned this to you before, was that there are some scenes where there is in-camera lighting, 
but it doesn't seem to be lighting anything. Mm. So that the part outside Ajax Ranch, mm. as you've pointed out, it's grey dust and it's dark and there are lights on the side of the house but they're, but they're pointed casting. nowhere near the scene well, no they are but they're not casting any light from them and we saw Dune um, I saw it just before Eternals Sharon saw it just after Eternals and there are moments in that where Villeneuve has uh, it, it, for a moment it seems murky but then a blooming orange cloud or explosion in the background will perfectly silhouette what you're looking at so the eye is never told Look at this thing over here. Now look at this thing. I don't know, maybe that thing there. Ultimately, when you're trying to watch a movie and you don't even really know what to watch, that feels like a visual problem. And again, could just be my eyes. I'm going to stop talking about this because it could just not be the case. But consider this an update in something that I've noticed in contemporary films that's turned up repeatedly since cinema went to digital but is more notable in its contrast, or lack thereof, when compared with films that do look amazing. A Wrinkle in Time, Knives Out, Blade Runner 2049, Murder on the Orient Express, Defy Bloods, Aquaman, Mad Max Fury Road, Paddington 2, The Force Awakens, Master Z, Bumblebee, Creed, The Grand Budapest Hotel, It, The Shallows, Little Women, Us, and lest we forget, Detective Pikachu, when compared with films where you can see skin texture and tone the whole way through, where clothing registers to the eye. And this has definitely been ramped up, I think, since I got an OLED TV getting hooked on Arrow Blu-ray and similar specialist media production houses of the kind that will be the only ones making Blu-ray in 10 years' time, and getting into gorgeously remastered re-releases of 80s schlock that no one gives a toss about, but was well photographed on film. And just seeing old films from the 80s that now look like they were made yesterday. Always look at what the light is doing with skin texture and clothing. Because ultimately, when all is said and done, as much of a visual kaleidoscope as cinema can be, most films are about people talking to other people whilst wearing clothes. Which is why Lighting schemes like Solo feel like they strangled the film before it can even reach your eyes. Since the big changeover to digital, I've seen a lot less movies, even though I've watched more. <laughs> <laughs> Shandar Dastane Icarus. I'm playing you. You like the costume? We need to talk. Tell the director I have some notes for him. We need to talk to you in private. Oh, Karan, he's worked with me for 50 years. I trust him completely. Actually, when we first met, he thought I was a vampire, and he tried to stake me through the heart. I have apologized so many times. Not quite enough times. Very close, though. I'll let you know. Oh, I have to get ready for the next scene. Come to my tent. We'll talk there. You, you guys are going to love the next scene. I come in on a wire because, you know, I can't fly. Wait, are we getting back together? We need to talk. The deviants are back. We don't know how many there are. You need to come with us. Everyone loves Kingo, 
And he steps out of the movie in the uh, uh, beginning of the third act. He goes, yeah, you know what? I kind of agree with... Uh, it wasn't, it, I don't want to go against Icarius, and I don't want to go against our bosses, so I'm just going to sit this one out. And I've seen this compared to Han Solo going... Besides, attacking that battle station ain't my idea of courage. It's more like suicide. All right. Well, take care of yourself, Han. I guess that's what you're best at, isn't it? Hey, Luke. May the force be with you. What are you looking at? I know what I'm doing. And they're not coming back and saving him at the end of the Death Star. Like, like not turning up. And then maybe turning up for the medal ceremony and going, well done, Luke. And, and everyone going, why the fuck are you still here? I've just been packing all my gold onto the Falcon. And I understand, but that feels like fallout from, well, we introduced 10 characters and we had to get rid of some of them. And Kingo was just taking all the attention. That's like getting rid of Iron Man before the third act of the Avengers. It doesn't really make that much sense and by the way our audience were leaning into the humor they wanted to laugh so every even the small jokes were getting guffaws from everyone having kingo there at the uh, in that final battle at least even just philosophically having to weigh up the fact that he's a massive coward that's great that's a great character and there aren't that many great literary cowards Kushagi and scooby are interesting characters they're two of the most major characters in american literature because, and I mean this sincerely, and I think it's fantastic, because they are cowards. They are cowardly characters. They believe in cowardice and sandwiches. And, uh, and can you think of any in the whole realms of the English-speaking literature that, that are characters like that, cowardly characters that you identify with? Because you identify with, you're with them all the way. Go, Shaggy, go, Scooby. <laughs> the rest of the guys who drive the van, fuck off. <laughs> Scrappy-Doo, a magnum. <laughs> Thank you, Grandad. <laughs> well remembered. But Shaggy and Scooby, the only other character... I mean, tell me now if you can think of any other character, because I'm, I'm willing to learn, but somebody mentioned Falstaff, a Shakespearean character. It's that level of greatness. <laughs> Falstaff is a character... You sort of identify with him, but he has a melancholy with him. But Shaggy and Scooby are upbeat all the time. They say, scared, Shaggy. Scooby said, And you love him. You're with him. There's part of us that Shaggy and Scooby at every stage of the way. So if you travel around the world, and you're, you know, because your American foreign policy does give you a difficult time to exist around the world. Two tricks, one, so you're Canadian, that helps. And um, it is, it works in Europe, it's very good. And the second is uh, just say Shaggy and Scooby. They go, Shaggy and Scooby. <laughs> International credit card, I think I'll find. So yeah. And the third one, and this actually comes in weirdly appropriately because we've just covered Interview with the Vampire. Kirsten Dunst's performance as a very, very young girl who gets made into a vampire and then endures a lifetime of growing older and ends up like a 40-something-year-old woman trapped in the body of a child was a stellar, amazing debut for Kirsten Dunst. I actually don't think she's done better than that, and that's not necessarily... Uh, impugning her acting since then it's the challenge of being that level of intense on screen as a child actor so with Sprite a while into the film I just sort of asked myself why did the Celestials make her a young girl and there was never an answer 
And again, this is the minutiae, but I don't think there's an answer they could give. It just feels like, well, this is a poor character who wants to be an adult, but is trapped in the body of a child, but can make herself look like an adult. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, she's trapped in the body of a child, but she can make herself look like an adult. Yes. And she isn't prey to all of those hormones that teenagers are prey to. Oh, heavens no. So why doesn't she just make herself an adult all the time? What's the problem here? (laughs) It just, it felt like there was no good reason for them to make her a child. It's like she's not hanging out with other children and teaching them things. If anything, she hangs out with adults and despises kids. Effectively, the, the Celestials created these guys to all get along with each other and not drive each other nuts on the, on, the, on the planet that they're effectively stationed at. It's a military operation. Why put a kid in there who, within just a couple of decades' worth of existence, will be an adult woman in her head for the rest of their allotted time? It makes sense if it's like, you've all got to look after baby Groot. That works in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It doesn't work here because she's 7,000 years old. Same as them. Same as them. She's just as old as they are. And the difference between her, the difference between her and Gemma Chan in terms of development was nothing. Like they were both philosophical about what was going on and they both cast their lot into opposing teams. And the fact that Sprite was looked to us like a kid who, by the way, was performing an excellent adult performance in this child body to the point where some people were saying she doesn't look young enough. And it's like, no, she's just acting really well. It's it just it seemed like a baffling choice, especially when you've got so frigging much to juggle. So many characters. Chloe Zhao approached this with I've got great ideas for all these characters and they just let her use all of them rather than saying, "Okay, we need to just trim this and this just so that we can really focus this movie. And again, I kind of like the fact and, and I totally support the fact that this was a risk as a result of that. It's just that it's kind of head-scratchy at times. When they meddle with production, you get an Ant-Man. But you might get a Thor The Dark World. At least this ends up being what it is on its own terms. Which There's m- definitely something to be said for your your statement that like this could have worked. Like I, I think that this and Falcon and Winter Soldier maybe should have switched places. And Falcon and Winter Soldier should have been, you know, like basically a lethal weapon-esque, you know, 215, sort of like trim all the fat and put that out as a movie and maybe do this as the sixth part. I agree. That's exactly what I put. This should have been a TV series. Falcon should have been a movie. And there there are enough pieces that you can just kind of see, like, one of the... And and again, I don't want to say that this is just a failure of the film, but one of the things that it does very deliberately do is create these characters that you're like, I would watch two, three, four, five, seven thousand years of this person's life through history. Like yeah. I would definitely watch Kumel Nanjiani perform Kingo's all all of those movies. And I would I would definitely like like to see Thena defending Athens from whatever and, and all this stuff. Mm. So when you're when you're trying to like cobble together the well, why did X character get turned out this way? The the only thing that I can like really pull from the film itself in terms of Sprite is that she's the storyteller. She's the attention getter. She's like the little kid being a carnival barker trying to inspire humanity and then using her illusions to be like, hey, you know, you can do this, you know, be be inspired by these by these incredible figures and go out into the world and 
and be fruitful and multiply so that our God can eat you. There's a, a benefit to be had, and this is potentially something that needed that space of a TV show to discuss, mm. is that exactly. if you form your storyteller as a young child, mm. then most civilizations that you put her down in to do her storytelling thing are going to feel compassionately and protective towards her and not mob her and kill her when she says something hmm. they don't agree with. The fact that she basically hasn't been able to to do the thing that she's best at for however many centuries is a really cool... Out, yeah, yeah and, and it's... Well, yeah. but But it's a really interesting thing to think about because you have all these characters who are using their abilities in different ways and she's kind of like left twisting in the wind mm. but the film only gets to explore like little shades of that and still ends up having to like wrap it into her feelings with Icarus as well yeah. when just like the the transformation of human shared narrative across the millennia through the eyes of a character specifically created to tell inspiring stories. Like that's an entire episode of an eternal show. Mm -hmm. All that said, uh, we've, uh, frankly, I've now moved on past the weaknesses point, and I'm now at the point where we can talk about the good stuff. Um, it had so many strengths that we can talk about. This film is intelligently scripted. It is compassionately conveyed. It has progressive momentum. It has rich and deeply welcome diversity in a superhero blockbuster. It has excellent, intense, honest performances. Raman Javadi returning for the first time since 2008's Iron Man, clearly as a move intended to jumpstart the MCU again, provides an inspiring score. And this film, even despite the khaki tones, is on so many levels beautiful. It has unusual, crafted and elegant effects. It has a dizzying scale and a philosophical edge to every scene. And as a result, it is bittersweet for me, considering the mixed responses, to judge this as the most Jack Kirby of any of the films that deal in characters Jack Kirby helped to create. We've had four Fantastic Four films, if we count the Roger Corman one, <laughs> including Rise of the Silver Surfer, where Galactus was an angry cloud. We've had 13 X-Men films. Jack Kirby helped create the X-Men. We've had three Thors with a fourth on the way. We've had two Hulks, We've plus all of Hulk's appearances in the Avengers. We've had and Thor Ragnarok. We've had four Captain Americas, if we include the Matt Salinger Matt one, the one who nicks your car. I don't. I don't. <laughs> We've had four Avengers movies. We've had Zack Snyder's Justice League with all of that fourth world stuff that was being hinted at, and then Ava DuVernay was going to make her. A fourth world film and then DC went oh actually no DCWB we, we, we don't want to confuse people who like this version of Darkseid Sharon's holding her head in her hands and lest I'm we pouring out a 40 yeah lest we forget Black Panther was created as a guest for uh, the Fantastic Four and then they expanded on that to create Wakanda but look, watching this and what, like, as we finished, I was like, the first name that needs to come up is Jack Kirby. Because this really feels like his 
brain pan filtered through Chloe Zhao and her perception of human existence and our connection to one another. They're both speaking the same cosmic language. I'm still waiting for Disney, and you, it might already exist, but I want there to be a documentary, or even frankly a series of documentaries, The Worlds of Jack Kirby. And just kind of set the record straight for everyone watching all these friggin' Marvel movies on their service to say, Stan Lee, absolutely essential. Steve Ditko, absolutely essential. Jack Kirby, absolutely essential to all of these heroes that we enjoy. So my first question that will allow us to showcase the positive achievements of this film is how does it explore and manage the agelessness of the Eternals? Well, like I said, one of the things I think this film is really accomplished at is showing how these these ageless beings that are designed not to be able to evolve physically are incapable of not evolving emotionally. Like we see every single one of them form these these attachments, not just to each other, which they don't start the film with. They're, they, except for like one or two of them, they all have no memories. And so all these attachments are just things that have developed since they encountered humanity. And then most of them have a very strong connection to humanity through the relationship with uh, another person or the the way their relationship to each other reflects how they've they've taken on aspects of humanity and so the the way that it, it it teaches like these characters that this sort of bending from a very binary sort of like protect this follow this it, it is inescapable that that you start feeling for your home and that you start looking at things a different way after a long enough period of time. I think the the inextricable links that they have with mythology is a big part of this as well. Mythology is one of the ways that humans make sense of our own timeline, of how long we've been here and the things that we've accomplished and the things that we've fucked up in that period. And the fact that all of them have names that are either direct references to or reminiscent mm. of Mythological gods figures. Or mythological gods, figures, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Not all of the names parallel with things that they do or even characteristics that they have. I mean, Ajax is the, the first thing that I thought of was Ajax, the Greek hero, which From couldn't Troy. be more removed mm. from Salma Hayek's very maternal leader. But the others, there's, there's often elements of, of who humans could have interpreted them as. And it's hinted that some of them have taken other forms as well through the course of history. Makari is Mercury. Yeah. The speed god. The messenger god. And I believe somebody says that there was a, a point where she emulated Thoth and brought them writing and an ability to communicate, which is very appropriate for the fact that she can't communicate verbally. Yeah, so she's, she's she's incapable of of oral of oral history and, and passing down of things, and so she like her her presence necessitates alternate forms of communication and the the encouragement to the development of writing. Absolutely, Fastos 
is Hephaestus, Hephaestus. The, the 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 architect and the the forge god, the, the one, one who, who makes creates the lightning, bolts. the lightning bolts. All of these mythologies throughout history all intersect with each other, and they're all different interpretations. Do you think of... any of them turned up in uh, in ancient Germania when? the denizens of Asgard turned up and they were like, they, they think that we're gods. Uh, what should we do? Oh, just go with it. Just, <laughs> just, just, they think we're angels too, just, you know. Entirely possible. I did see somebody refer to the whole sort of, these are aliens or angels bringing knowledge and understanding to humans. And they said, just because white people can't do it doesn't mean it's aliens, <laughs> which is a fair observation. That the fact that they have kind of embraced this Myth mythological perception of their charges to interpret and incorporate the fact that they have experienced much more and over a greater timeline than humans have and they all react to this in different ways and deal with it in different ways particularly when they're one distraction, if you like, their mission, mm. the thing that they can put all their attention to and it stops them having to think too much about the fact that they've been around for 7,000 years, once that's put aside, that's when they really start having to deal with, you've been here for so long and all you really have in terms of people who have shared experiences are these 10 people who came here with you. But they don't like some of them deal with this by entering into relationships with humans. Mm. Phaestos gets married, has a child. Circe is engaged in something with Kit Harrington, which neither of them really seem able to figure out what is. Side note, that also allowed Marvel to finally venture away from their sexless existence. We've mm. got, we got, had the first Marvel sex scene since Iron Man in 2008. Maybe Raman Javadi insists upon it. <laughs> like, if I'm going to score for you, I'm going to need a sex scene. want a sex scene. That's yeah. why it was all in Game of Thrones. Mm. It was a really intimate, and I felt the crowd around us feeling a little uncomfortable. There's a reason why Marvel don't do it. People don't want to look at boning in the cinema. It's... It's touching too much for them. They are fine with all kinds of violence. But the prevailing wisdom is now you can put 100 deaths in your PG-13, but you don't put sex in a blockbuster. I wish they could. And the more they do, the more people will go, oh, maybe maybe it's okay. Maybe it's something a given that we can like imagine that, that sex will be back in, in, in films. Well, I think a lot of it is people don't... What, the, some people struggle to be comfortable with observing that kind of thing yeah. in the same room as their children. Yeah. You don't want to feel like, how do, I f how do I feel about this? Am I aroused? Am I touched? Is this, you know, but I feel also that, that Chloe Zhao was like, this is a rider. We are having this level of no intimacy in my movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we are having this level of intimacy in my movie. Otherwise, I'm not breaking a new ground and I'm this this film will will feel too like everything else. It would be I think and, and this is something that we touched on when we talked about interview with a vampire mm. as well when you are exploring relationships between people who've been around each other for hundreds of years thousands mm. in this case it feels noticeably absent if there is not an element of erotic connections being explored. Yeah. And it, it just feels like, oh, oh, over time, kind of like uh, the gay communities in the 90s, uh, that, that you would kind of, 
you'd pair off and maybe just see how how you go with this person and then remain friends and then pair off with someone else but all basically kind of remain as this sort of insular local group even though your locality is the earth mm. which which is partly why the the branching out and starting to engage in relationships with humans mm. when they know those humans aren't going to last long yeah is an ex uh, an expression of how those individual eternals are dealing with their own immortality yeah. if anything um it feels like Cersei would consider kit harrington as uh, like a dog like a really a cute <laughs> retriever that she's getting who will bring her such happiness for just a part of her life small point by the way but the one of the downsides of setting this in london and having that opening scene where she's in the natural Natural history museum Museum. do they have school classrooms yes literally one of the first thoughts that popped into my head was what kind of posh school is this that they have science lessons in the natural history museum it's not hogwarts (laughs) even though she is doing magic Uh, But the other thing that I was going to mention regarding intimacy and that intimacy being handled in a mature fashion that just took the audience to go, you know what, this is fine, this is this, we're going to carry on and just do this, was uh, Faceless and his husband. That was such a sweet, honest, natural relationship and they had such great chemistry and I didn't feel like they were going, look, we've got a gay. It just felt more like... This is his life. Yeah. This is their life it's together. It's the lack of over-explanation. The fact that there is a child present and nobody feels the need to talk about whether either of them are, are his natural father, mm. whether there's something else at play here that we don't know about, it doesn't matter. No one questioned it. This is their is family unit. We see them in action together and it makes sense. It had that along with many things, including the cyclical destructive nature of the impossibly enormous all-consuming reapers with mass effect that's how you normalize things you don't question the unusual and you allow it to become usual and this entails sex intimacy and all kinds of queerness that the less it's necessarily made a big deal of and the more it's there in the background slowly moving towards the foreground and just becoming kind of part of it, part of the the way we live our lives, the less hung up everyone will get on trying to fight or or be feel forced to embrace it. Just, it's something some people do. It's not hurting anyone. And the way that it's introduced in this film, there there's a lot that Chloe Zhao does with giving the audience like two and two and just letting not necessarily she she does have to use some shorthand but she's also doing shorthand in a very smart marvel-esque way so mm-hmm. specifically when we meet Phaestos and his family it's it's the marvel thing of like ooh, we get to see some characters interact with other characters and because they cast these incredibly charismatic actors and are very good at finding people who bounce off each other it's oh i can't wait to you know and then we're just introduced to this very likable family unit with the kid who immediately says the first thing that we're thinking about Richard Madden's best choice brand Superman. <laughs> and so like, it's just, it's one of those things where Zhao's like, okay, I'm using the, the Marvel like template and I'm going to use that. And I'm just going to like plug a few little things in here so that this scene is Superman has to come to his gay black friend for help to save the world. <laughs> and boom, that's just like, you know, that that is a that is a big like 
thing to have in a $200 million movie that's big because it's just treated as matter-of-factly. Just the way that they say, you know, the friends from college. We never have to be told that friends from college is the code word for the Eternals, and we get to see everyone else react to that code word and see, like, oh, okay, you know this much. Oh, you know everything. We, we're just we're just presented with that in a very clear way. Mm. It is bonkers, by the way, that there, there was never a case of Sprite. The official word is you are Icarus's daughter, because that would have driven her fucking nuts. But at the oh same time, it, it's a cover story that they could maintain. Mm. No one ever says, my friend's from college, and this 12-year-old girl. <laughs> Everybody looks at Sprite. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, Phaestos, I have to say, was probably one of my favourite characters. And it, that was largely because of the way he sees the world and the way we see the world through his power set. Yeah, His ability to create and again this is this is part of how he has come to deal with his extremely long life is I will build things that will make this life better for everybody around me. And that's partly why he's so torn apart when he witnesses the mm. development of the atomic bomb. Yeah. And why he hit part of his creating a family with a human is a retreat it's an i don't want to be an eternal i don't want to be an immortal who has to watch all of the horror that these people are visiting on each other and feel like i'm partly responsible for yeah, it it's a self-preservation thing it's mm. it's to be able to protect his mind yeah. from all of this Absolutely. i completely understand that yeah yeah Athena, with Angelina Jolie, when I first saw all of the uh, early test stuff, I'm like, okay, so you're, you're Diana. Okay, that's cool. What else is there? There's got to be a hook. Jolie would not have agreed to do this without that. And then I found she has effectively a, a, a mental or, or brain disorder which makes her forget herself and makes, you know, a sudden outburst of violence towards people that she cares about. So it is, in fact, part way between Diana and Jolie's breakout character, Lisa Rowe, in Girl Interrupted, which I felt like, well, there it is then. And the, the tender relationship she has with um, Gilgamesh, it, it was so gratifying to see that done in a kind of a we-are-maintaining way, as opposed to we have written this character off, she's there until she dies, because, of course, she can't. That's the thing. It's it's like, how do we get a new normal or a new stable way of living? And ultimately, it just came down to um, Gilgamesh deciding, I'm going to make this my thing. I'm going to make this. I will absolutely care for you. For and, and the tenderness and intimacy of their relationship was very much a kind of a behind-closed-doors thing. It's not really our business, and we don't really necessarily know what went on but as soon as i saw all this happening i was like oh god they're gonna kill him oh mm. god and how he goes out does not seem like something that would happen to someone who'd been fighting these exact creatures for seven thousand years his tactics are hit them with his glowing fist once even iron fist did more than that and none of that matters that's just minutiae again it's just how they facilitated his death in the film. But it felt cruel taking him away. 
And it felt like if you're going to deliver all these characters and for them to be this rich and then start taking them away so soon, I almost would have preferred, no, I would have preferred two Eternals films, one where you meet the first five, the other where you meet the other five, and you don't kill any of them until the end of two. A big showdown, yeah, yeah. He is another example, actually, like Phaestos, of something that always helps me to connect with superhero characters, which is, I can do this, therefore I should do this. There's this strong sense of, it's not even exactly duty, it's more, this is the thing, that the the taking care of Thena, he had the strength to do it, and therefore the inclination to do that kind of comes from that almost automatically. Yeah. There's also this ties in with what we're talking about regarding the uh, the agelessness of them. The, and this is something that I've dabbled in repeatedly in uh, my own writing. Thena is told she can get rid of this malady as long as she gives up her memories. And she doesn't want to. And this ties in with their, their fear. They, they're, they're kind of being wiped and replaced or destroyed and replaced... Mm. And they they have an ex- existential crisis surrounding that, which but, only really starts to manifest when they find out that they are synthetic creatures, yeah. which is not something that they start the film knowing. It did remind me of Blade Runner, mm. like repeatedly. This felt like again Villeneuve territory, yeah, in in a good way. Um, and uh, I, I would love to see Chloe Zhao do a Blade Runner movie as well. Um, what makes us alive? Yeah, that there are questions like that posed. The 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 idea of is. Deckard a replicant or not is totally unimportant. It's what what makes us feel like us. And in the case of Thena, she doesn't want to give up her memories because to her, those are her. That is a death itself. That if she loses that, that be- then she becomes someone else. Yeah. And also there's an element of the, the mad weary that she's experiencing, which is a, a sort of a thematic... Imitant of something like a dementia or senility, senili- or something of that nature that we normally associate as coming with age, which they don't have, yeah. but it is associated with having been around for this long, that things start to deteriorate, even if your body doesn't, yeah. and therefore this is going to emerge. That it takes her memories anyway, but it takes them piecemeal, mm. and that if she says, yeah, fine, wipe it all, and I'll, I'll go back to square one, it's almost like giving into it. I, I really wish that we had, like, and, and again, this is part of going into, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this were a, a series, but I, I would have taken, like, another solid half an hour of just Gilgamesh and Athena. I think you're right that not, not only is there a lot of great dramatic work done with those two characters and how they relate to each other and the trauma of their existence, but just the fact that you have Don Lee presented as an incredibly strong, very, like, he's, he, they they do, like, do the joke about him in the baby suit because families give each other shit, <laughs> but, like, he's also the guy who's shacking up with Angelina Jolie. Mm. Uh-huh. Like, this is, this is a large man who is treated as both a physical specimen, an intimidating warrior, but also he's, he's just, like, an incredibly nurturing dude who bakes pies. I love him 
so much and it just like rips my heart out whenever we lose him in that movie partly because we get to like we get to linger on that i mean we 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 see an aftermath of ajak and so that's that feels like a theft in and of itself but chloe Zhao using a another way of like lingering on him saying goodbye to Thena and how that just absolutely destroys her yeah. is is just really rough to watch but it's also oh man the the actors just crush that moment yeah what are they fighting and why because this is a film that seems to come out with no villain to begin with and some fairly clear villains at the end but they're almost symbolic villains rather than direct, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's also a degree of failure and redemption on the part of most of them, to be fair. Yeah. So If you live that long, you're going to fuck up. Absolutely. But if you look at... I mean, you said that it, ultimately it turns out one of their own is killing them, but there were moments throughout this where I genuinely thought it could be at least three of them. Yeah. And then, obviously... Who were the others? Uh, Druig. Yeah. Because he's the one who goes down what I would consider to be quite a dark path in the mind control realm. He has very strong feelings about how humans treat each other. Absolutely. And honestly, that I found really interesting and thought that was something else that could have been given a lot more breathing room. Because what I was saying about superheroes who who basically say, I can do this, therefore I should do this. He spends most of his timeline doing the opposite to that. He knows he can control humans and stop them from fighting each other and and being constantly in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And he has to resist the temptation to do that. And eventually he resists it so hard, he leaves. He detaches himself from humans completely because like Phaestos, he can't bear to keep watching them do this. Yeah. But he does still have, because he kind of gets this little macrocosm of, but I have a small group of people who I am going to mind control. (laughs) It's like, well, okay, that's the thin end of the wedge, dude. It's his way way of maintaining a form of stability. Yes. He's he's also and and I wish the movie had engaged with this a little bit more because the Eternals themselves do kind of call him out on this being dude like Drew this is a little fucked up oh yeah because um, he is he has been using his powers to control people for centuries including indigenous people but he by doing that he has saved an entire like civil well or at least a portion of civilization from genocide mm. and like my. My impression is that he's basically just like not letting this group of people that he went off into the forest with kill each other. And so they've just been kind of hanging out. And so he's just like every now and then he's like, hey, 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 drop it, drop it. Okay. What you're describing is uh, Conrad's heart of darkness, that he's he's an altruistic Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. Which is one of the things that makes... I did get that feeling at one point it could be him yeah. that's pulling I mean that exactly. makes for a great villain an altruistic Colonel Kurtz sign me up mm. and and because Zhao knows this and again she's like she cast Richard Squarejaw Madden as basically Superman for a reason she she knows this she, she's got the like the guy with the really hard accent and you know like kind of thin looking looks like he could have the shifty eyes like and that's Drew and she's like oh okay 
I, I know what audiences expect from this. Yeah. If I put Druig here doing this stuff, maybe you're not going to notice Richard Madden lingering at the edge of that frame or giving that look when someone says that line. And if you do, maybe you're just going to assume, oh yeah, he's still hung up on Cersei and not like, oh yeah, someone just referenced the character that he murdered. It's a Del Toro move. The uh, the, the the, and I was actually quite pleased the way it turned out. Like I was I was horrified the way it turned out, and I felt incredibly sorry for Ajax as you're supposed to. But I also felt sorry for Icarus himself. The way uh, Del Toro works, he usually makes the tall, strapping white guy the paragon of our civilization. That turns out to be the villain and uh, when I first saw the lineup for the Eternals based on Jack Kirby's run I was like okay so He-Man at the front there now the way I'd do it would be make him the villain so then when I watched it I went oh she has awesome <laughs> okay cool good points but then she did way better than that and rather than him just being sneering and I'm protecting the fact that this whole system benefits me he could have just done that but he just seems to be just filled with grief and confusion and anger, but not in a childish way. Mm, yeah, it's not, it's not, he is trying to protect the system, but not in a this system benefits me way, because ultimately if the emergence happens, he's gonna either die or be removed and mind wiped and, and set on another planet like everyone else. But Kind of like the droids in Star Wars. Yeah, but he is of the mindset that the 7,000 years that they've had, I, I think personally, anyway, this is, this is part of my interpretation, it's not made explicitly obvious, but he is struggling with this, this 7,000 years. He is tired and he has, he has to believe in the system they've been asked to work for because otherwise that's 7,000 years of what? I am weirdly reminded of, um... Uh, Jenny Nicholson talking about Westworld and she's like couldn't you just get the uh, androids in Westworld to be actors who don't feel the pain but are very good at acting like they're in pain so so rather than making them genuinely care for the people make them simply kind of coldly distantly you know there to exterminate like that's the there's no reason for the uh, Celestials to make them this level of philosophical. If anything, it's most likely to drive them insane, making them all Highlanders. Correct. So, you've seen our promotional DVD. What do you think of Westworld, the theme park of the future? Um, well, got a few follow-up questions. Okay. Why are they robots? Guests want a fully immersive experience. They need everything to feel real and cater to their needs. So why not human actors? Uh, also they want to have sex with the robots. And there it is. But that's only a small part of what Westworld is about. Oh god, you said the horses were robots too. Why are the horses robots? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's just so we don't have horseback riding accidents. Oh, 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 thank god. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Although, if they wanted to. Gonna move on now. I mean, it's definitely impressive. You and your team are basically playing God. I hope you thoroughly vetted everyone involved with this. Mm, what do you mean? Well, I can only imagine what could go wrong with this kind of operation if it was some kind of roiling powder keg of conflicting personalities, sadists, emotional baggage. Oh, oh yeah, sure. None of that. You sure? Yeah, yeah. There are like a million ways to exploit this and just drive yourself 100% crazy. Oh, ho, ho, ho. 
Fair enough. Now this is kind of my main issue. How do the robots feel about all this? They don't feel anything. They're robots. It just kind of looked like they could feel pain. Oh, well, in a way. And fear. Well, we need the stakes to feel high for our guests. Maybe anger, too. Bloodlust, a little bit. That all gets erased at the end of each story. Besides, none of our robots can harm a guest. Okay. Yeah, I mean... If that works. Of course it'll work. What about that robot? Is she okay? I try to see the good in this world. Yeah, she's fine. I can remember myself dying. She's great. Okay, sorry. I'm just like, why not have actor robots? What? Well, you know, just like make the same super lifelike, super sentient robots. And they're still robots, so people can still kill them and have sex with them and whatever else they want to do. But... Instead of them thinking it's real, they just don't feel pain, and they don't feel fear, and they just pretend to, because they're good actors, and you program them that way, and then they wouldn't, like, freak out, or suffer, or want revenge, or anything like that. Just a thought. But... Again, I'm so glad they did, because yeah. it makes for a really interesting story. If... Right. But I don't get the Celestials' grand plan here. It's like they're, they're deliberately doing things that would undermine their own intentions. Yes, they are. But if they made their synthetic beings aware that they were synthetic, mm-hmm. aware that they were totally detached from, from humans, like not just your beings from another planet, but you have a similar but longer life cycle, you love each other, you care about each other, you have compassion for each other, so do these humans. I can remember so- every time I've died. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if, if they put them on the planet with that, cold, removed, detached, here is your mission, but I'm not giving you really any reason to fulfil it other than you've been told to, Mm. watch how fast you get 10 Dr. Manhattans leaving and going, you know what? Fuck it, I wash my hands of the whole affair. Or 10 Roy Batties. Potentially so. But But again, it doesn't really make... You then lose your protectors, Mm. the deviants multiply and overrun all of your intelligent life and your whole plan goes to... It does seem crazy that over the 7,000 years they never figure it out because it does a bit (laughs) they're smart but uh, Bob said they were babies which is something that Shredder was was lamenting they do seem to have a particularly naive and idealistic way of looking at things yes and I think part of why they never go could we be synthetic beings they never click to anything like that because they've never seen any examples of technology that advanced it feels like over the 7,000 years in the MCU they'd have probably seen a few things yeah that's fair if if nothing else at some point they're all going to go to the cinema watch the matrix and then come out and go Wait a minute. Shit. I mean, like, your entire response to this movie could simply be that gif. That just raises further questions! (laughs) Well, indeed. But at the same time... That's a good thing. Raising questions uh, as opposed to, here is a giant collection of answers, is is more engaging. And and I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a failing of the film that it doesn't necessarily make full logical sense, since it the whole thing is kind of a... A love letter to the Earth, which after all of uh, Optimus Prime talking about how fucking rad human beings are in Transformers, that rings so hollow in those films. Because Michael Bay 
does not does consider not humans, humans right. to be like that. You just <laughs> no, need to doesn't. watch um, Pain and Gain to realise what he actually thinks of people yeah. in that little black worm jism that he calls a soul. But I do think that there is an element of if you want these beings to protect humanity, they have to be able to relate to them in some way. Yeah. And if your whole plan and your whole structure of how you are going to cultivate these planets of intelligent life so that your celestials can feed and be born, then you need something that is dependable, that will make them do the task that you've set them there to do. They're almost David from AI who've been programmed to love humans no matter what. No matter what. what, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, but that that's it's built into the DNA of people that we respond to each other and we nurture each other and we care for each other and to the point where when somebody doesn't do that to particularly to an extreme we traditionally less of a thing lately we consider that an aberration we <laughs> consider that to be to an, to be an indication that there is something wrong with that person if they can't the, feel any compassion or empathy or nurturance for at least someone. The the other side of that from just like a sheer practicality level is that they have to be able to relate to each other enough to want to work together to fight the giant greebly monsters and not get killed doing it because they are super strong and all this. But, I mean, we do see even in that opening sequence they can be hurt. They obviously can be killed. So we need them to be able to basically form attachments to one another so that that is a an undesirable outcome. Mm. And just once you start that, especially when you look so similar to the people of Earth, it's it's almost impossible not to transfer that attachment. And the and the movie very like deftly does a good job of like showing like how the how broad these attachments get. Like Icarus is very, very concentrated on just that because because he knows that this is a a temporary scenario so he has chosen to to limit his attachment to like basically one person mm-hmm. that he yeah. will not and cross specifically the line another uh, eternal rather than um getting involved with humans how long did he know exactly. is it he knew since he knew since um the the 1500s when basically the band broke up right okay it was or no, no, no. I'm sorry. Um, I think he mentioned Babylon. It was it was either before the band broke up, or like before he got together with Cersei. It was it was sometime during his relationship with Cersei, but after they got to Earth. Mm. There was a time in 2018 when uh, Kevin Feige cast Gemma Chan as a kind of nobody in particular in uh, Captain Marvel. And she had her fight and Nerf guns were involved and then she died. And then Crazy Rich Asians came out and Kevin Feige must have realized, oh, she's amazing. You pointed out that uh, she was originally offered the role that went to Constance Wu in the end. Yes, yeah, as Rachel, but she had read the book. Mm and asked if she could play Astrid, Astrid. instead. And she may, she performed a miracle with Astrid's character, and I recommend our show on Crazy Rich Asians if you'd like to uh, hear more about that. Such amazing casting for, for, your, for your lead character, because she makes that compassion 
come from a place that feels so totally real that I never for a moment was not engaged with her as a protector and as for someone who actually gave a shit Absolutely. about all of this. Absolutely. And it's it, it almost had a, a Steve Rogers level of earnestness about it. Yes, and there's a, a quality to her power set and in particular the way that she administers the energy of the Unimind in order to transmute the, the emerging celestial into frozen rock hmm. which gave me this really strong sense of her being like an elemental witch yeah effectively she is drawing on energy which we ultimately find out is coming from the earth because the celestial ends up uh, Tiamat ends up giving her power whether it's intentional or not I don't know hmm. but but the the last power that she needs comes from that connection with the earth itself and enables her to perform this huge task to save it from being consumed. It's also very deftly tied to her worldview, specifically in her power set, because she's all about transformation and mm. and how how things can become something else. And every and, and we don't see her throwing these around willy nilly, but we do see her as as her role with the group. It's it's all about how she relates to basically everyone's potential energy, the planet, the the fact that she is specifically working with with younger kids instead of like you know older high schoolers or college students. It's all about what could these people become, what could this planet become, and that's that's what she has to think about whenever she's using her powers anyway. And so she's just transferred that as an empathy tool to the entirety of the human race. Mm. It did occur to me when she's when she starts her transformation and when we are at the point of, of being aware that Icarus is the, the big bad at this stage, that Ajax was incredibly wise to make Cersei the leader rather than Icarus not just well, yeah. because she knew the path that he was going to go down but specifically that Cersei would be the one who would be able to stop him not by virtue of the fact that she is more powerful than he is but by virtue of the fact that he loves her and that love would stop him from killing her and interrupting her choice and her decision to do what she does and it works he can't do it that's the thing that puts the roadblock in his way and prevents him from following through on the decision that he's made Brendan, next question is actually uh, for you. Um, the global impending deadline of the celestial emergence could obviously be considered a fairly on the nose for a, uh, a series that involves something called Mad Weary, metaphor for climate change and what the hell we do about it. I do appreciate they even literally have the, um, the deviants that are released to be released because of melting ice in, in the Arctic regions. Yeah, but you had an additional reading on 
the fact that there's a celestial that's going to destroy this planet. But we've got to let it survive so that they can create other civilizations on other worlds. Uh, yeah, so Chloe Zhao made a $200 million movie about an off-brand Superman killing one woman of color and trying to force another woman of color to let an unwanted pregnancy come to term. Specifically, an unwanted pregnancy that will definitely kill the mother. Capital T, capital M. And Circe and everyone else who stand against him, they are opposing the representation of the way things are scripted to play out. That that is just kind of insane to me. Like the you you could look at at Eternals like just structurally as oh it's a Final Fantasy because you have this group of colorful characters that get assembled and then they have to go kill God, but specifically the way Zhao frames this as the the debate between life that is here and the potential for life elsewhere later at a time when large portions of the world including the country which directly financed this movie and that the the film studio that produced this movie comes out of is in the middle of a rising tide of Christo-fascism that is obsessed with the planet's destruction so that the right people can go to heaven and the wrong people can die in a lake of fire is not necessarily intentional but it also feels very timely um so that i think is is one of the biggest takeaways that i haven't seen much discussion of because everyone else is talking about how this has fared with critics you know compared to other marvel movies and i think that if nothing else taking away that like, that is what I want Marvel to be doing. I want them to be giving directors license to take swings that big at subjects that potentially hot button and coming down very definitively on one side. Because this isn't like a, you know, sort of Dark Knight thing where it's like, ooh, surveillance is bad, but Batman's not bad. So it's okay this one time. Like, she's, she's making a very definitive argument of like, no, F that, we protect the life that's here. Back to Chloe Zhao in the DVD store where she's talking about the influences of Terence Malick and for this final piece, Werner Herzog, specifically for his work on a Channel 4 miniseries from the United Kingdom on capital punishment in the USA called On Death Row. Werner and Terry are like my spiritual fathers, uh, father and mother. <laughs> you know, because for... 45 minutes, Werner is able to sit on the death row and look into this young person, into his eyes, and to capture so much humanity. Like, I don't have the guts to sit there and look into that person's eyes. And this film reminds me what storytelling could do for the world, is to see humanity, even in the people that we were told is not possible to be redeemed. I asked the jury, Please don't kill my son. They never had a chance. You did how many executions? They was over 125. I can't do no more. I'm done. And the fact that it gave the audience the confidence, gave trust the audience mm. 
going to be able to connect on a human level. And the way this film ended, when they talk about living the dash, and you notice the birds, hummingbirds, they're everywhere. And when it cut to black, it hit me like no film's ever hit me, the ending of this movie. You got your birth date, and you got the day that you deceased, and you got that little dash in the middle. That's your life right there. That's your, that's everything between, from the time you was born, from the time you die. How are you gonna live your dash? My last audiobook for a while, because I'm gonna be focusing on writing for the time being, Stone Spring Maidens is wrapping up over this next week with episode 31. Working with everyone on it has been absolutely fantastic. It's been an exercise in empathy, talking to people from different walks of life with different gender presentation, different sexuality, different self-identity, living with disability, growing up non-white. I urge you folks, if you specifically liked Eternals, to take a listen on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed, Stone Spring Maidens. Do you get people like me testing these limbs for you? Um, I mean, people missing bits of themselves. We have one swinging by in a bit. Listening to them as they each go through their Soma Oneros has changed the way I do things. Soma... Um... I'm not sure what the right concept for it would be in your language. The lip shell doesn't deal the sill in abstraction perfectly, so sometimes words don't translate one-to-one. Is it healing? Not exactly. And I've heard it described as a healing journey, and that just feels patronizing. But also, it's not a fight exactly, it's an existence spent with an awareness of one's own pain. That's why I don't like to use the word healing, because many on this path reach the end in a worse state than they were at the beginning. But the important thing is that this pain is recognized, internally and externally, and a measure of respect that might be the word, is afforded to someone going through it. Although, I've met plenty of people who don't seem to care, and they're difficult to work with. Would... Would Soma Oneros cover grief? Grieving definitely seems like it applies. Whether through injury or loss, or simply being born with a part of your body missing, or shaped irregularly, as you face the world, you are aware of a difference, an absence, and living with that is what makes it sacred. What if... What if a person is not as dignified as you're describing? What if every moment they're awake is a pile of shit and when they go to sleep they escape that for a little while but into horrible dreams where they just relive the same ordeal over and over and when they're half awake again reality comes barging back in what if they're an absolute mess who isn't on a journey at all and it's just a sobbing wreck on the floor most of the time. Penny thought about this for a long while, 
watching Harry's expression swing from shame to sorrow to anxiety. On some level, I think all Elaine feel the echo of that pain within our sisters and brothers. So that's the underlying foundation of Soma Oneros. It's an acknowledgement. You are seen. I'm seen. Once again, School of Movies and the New Century Multiverse are funded by Patreon and you good, fine, kind people who support us. And our $15 sponsors get a shout out every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. There's many other things to say about this uh, film. I feel like it'll actually benefit from years to look back and to see where they go with it. It almost, it worries me that they might not revisit it as a full Eternals film and that they will instead factor into someone else's bigger, grander adventure. But with a scale of that size, you could imagine it being something a lot of people want to take part in. And now we're several Eternals lighter, which is a damn shame. They have at least left themselves, like, the, the fact that the Eternals is about the villain being a power structure. Yeah. The It was the Deviants, and no, it turns out they were they were specifically created and then abandoned after they, you know, proved too troublesome. And so, like, we're, we're basically fighting against power structures that can be as big as we need them to be. Definitely gives them a lot of room to bounce off of other characters to pick up these threads. And I, I think if, if nothing else, Marvel's going to give this a long tail to see exactly where people land on it. Because, you know, like you said, I, I think there's a lot here for people to come back to once it's on, on digital and on Disney Plus and people can like chew over it in their living room without having to debate box office and, and weekends and this and that and, and, and all that. Hmm. The studios will chase whatever looks like it's going to make the next billion. Yeah. Okay. Um, we will obviously be there for whatever makes the next billion. But, uh, <laughs> you think? <laughs> before we go, Brendan, where can people find your best work? Uh, you can you can find me at uh, Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, or I occasionally... Uh, throw up long form reviews on normanerd.blogspot.com or you can just follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. 
Um, and I've, I've also been on a couple other uh, shows of this. Um, I actually recommend the the Aquaman show for a a film that's kind of doing like the fun early period of superheroes as modern myth that will, you know, help the medicine, uh, the, the very tragic melancholy medicine of the Eternals maybe go down better. Yeah, I've, that, that was a great show. And if you want the Arthur legend a lot weirder, check out The Green Knight. And again, we'll be doing a show on that next year. It's one of our movies of 2021. We will be back next week as the James Cameron season continues with his most troubled shoot, the notoriously elusive, and I know you love this one, Brendan, The Abyss. Mwah. <laughs> Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
of mine cry 